Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. I'm Dr. James Smith Jr. And welcome to another episode of the Dr. James Show. I can't wait to get to our guests. You're in for a treat. It'll be another phenomenal show. I'm going to bring in the co-hostess with the mostest, Shannon Peck, who will share with the folks what to expect going forward in terms of their participation. Hi, everyone. Shan, what's up? <laughs> uh, I don't know, just a small day. I don't know, if probably everyone has forgotten who's watching with election day. No, no, no big deal. <laughs> it's, gonna, it's gonna heat up in the evening, I'm sure. All things yeah. election, selection, whatever you wanna call it. What's happening with you these days? I'm just excited we have a captive audience right now uh, for this for this next hour before everyone is doing all things election. Um, so welcome all of our faithful viewers. We're so excited to see you back here again this week. And uh, those of you who are joining us for the first time, we're so happy to have you here. We hope that you enjoy the show. And don't forget to invite a friend back uh, next time or a colleague. Um, you know, we're here every week, um, but what to expect today? Listen, don't be shy. This is an opportunity to go into that chat room, ask all your questions, make your comments, and we'll we'll do our best to share them all and get them in your questions in uh, before the end of the show with our guest speaker. So um, excited to be here as usual. Well, I'm thrilled for the show because when I think of Major Ben Brooks, I think of a leader, I think of a historian, I think of a speaker, business owner, unofficial mentor. And I'm thrilled that he has decided to come on and let's meet him, President CEO of Major Ben's Consulting Firm, Major Ben Brooks. How are you, sir? Good morning. Good to see you, good to see you. Good to be here. Are you ready? You ready to do some educating and storytelling and, and sharing your, your wisdom? Ready to rock and roll. All right. I know, I've only, gosh, I think Major Brooks, I've known you for nearly 20 years. I met you as part of the Philadelphia chapter of the National Speakers Association, and I've come to know you since then, but we might have people on who don't know you. So my first question is, who is Major Ben Brooks? <laughs> I am a retired major of the Pennsylvania State Police. Uh, I spent 30 and a half years there. I came in uh, in 1961 as one of the first African-Americans to join that force. I rose to the rank uh, to major. I was a troop commander, uh, first African-American captain of the state police. At the same time, I was uh, a non, uh, uh, promoted to a troop commander, which is one of the most prestigious uh, positions within the state police, because it's where you impact more on the general populace than any other rank in there. You know? And so it was very, very important there. Uh, I spent my last five years in Harrisburg in charge of affirmative action contract compliance. And in that capacity, I developed a sexual harassment policy and procedures and training. At the same time, I was part of an interagency task force dealing with um, affirmative action diversity in relation to hate crimes with teaching law enforcement agency, police and, and corrections throughout Pennsylvania. And then after I retired in 1992, started my own business, Major Ben's Consulting, dealing with issues as the prevention of sexual harassment, mm -hmm. dealing with difficult people and policing your image. Uh, between 1993 and 97, I spent a lot of time with the Department of Transportation doing training for them. Uh, Philadelphia Police Department in 1997, and so we did the entire department there in sexual harassment prevention. 
In 2008 and 2010, all 600 judges of the minor judiciary of Pennsylvania had to go through my course on how to deal with difficult people as well as diversity. And we're starting around now dealing with unconscious bias with that same group. So there's been a lot of work in that in that area, you know, and we've come a long way with it. And, and right now we're still forging ahead because right now we're working with the school police right now dealing with issues uh, of uh, security uh, in our school systems. And uh, my part of my role there is to talk about bias uh, and dealing with policing and uh, uh, you know, diversity in, in the school systems. Let's 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 stay there then bias. What, what, what do you primarily talk about or what are some of the chief or major bias, bias, biases that you see or that you work to help people prevent or be even, be even aware of it? Well, first of all, we got to start by identifying what, what is bias. You hear folks talk about bias and hear, you hear such statements as, I'm the least biased person in the room or in the world. Well, when people tell you that, look at where they're coming from, you see, because they are probably some of the most biased people you can talk about. But what is bias? It's a preference for against something or someone. Now, where does this start? It starts in childhood. We, we say that in, in, uh, in this business, when a child is born, between the age of zero and six is when the basic personality of a child is formed. And much of the learning takes place during that period of time because of imitation or emulation. And after that, it's reinforcement of those kinds of behaviors, you know, that gets it into adulthood. And so then it, it, it begins to impact every decision that we make. You know, and so the question we ask ourselves out there, uh, and everyone runs away from, oh my God, I don't want to be involved with, with bias. Bias is how we have been able to survive so far. Go back to the nomadic days when you had tribes and people were in their little tribes and everyone was thinking alike and they had a little the comfort there. Everything was fine, but when there was an encroachment of another tribe, then there was a perception that something was gonna happen. You're gonna take something from us, kill us or whatever. And that became a, a conflict. So, so we say today that when we look at bias, we must own bias because that's who we are. The question is, how are we going to employ that bias? Are we going to do it in a positive or a negative way? And that's really one of the keys in terms of dealing with that. Well, thinking of staying with this, uh, people oftentimes say the police are biased with regard to how they handle certain things. How does bias and being an officer, how do they go hand in hand or how do you maintain an open mind rather than per perceive biases relative to different groups of people, different situations? Well, look at it this way. And when you, when you can own the fact that bias impacts every decision that you make and you can understand that, then you can be prepared for it. Because when police officers say, well, I'm not biased, yes, you are. The question is right now, what kind of actions are we going to take as a result of that particular uh, bias? Like for, for example, if you talk about uh, the, the whole notion of law enforcement profiling, and folks they say, well, you know, I don't profile. Well, yes, you do. That's what that's got us into trouble. The idea here is that you take a characteristic of a particular group and you take an action against that person because of a particular characteristic. How do you deal with that then without uh, getting accused of bias? I said, plain simple. When you are making a decision about 
anything. It must be based on performance or behavior. If it's based on any characteristic, you know, that's when bias becomes an issue uh, for you. So the key question is right now, why do we get in trouble? Because you really have to understand what bias is. You must understand the psychological and the biological impact of bias. Because if you don't do it that way, you're going to be making very, very bad decisions. You know, look at many of the aberrant behavior uh, that you see exhibited on many of our um, videos across, across the nation. Sure. Look at that, and you can you can you can see how all of these philosophies are being played out because they don't know how to behave in a in that in that bias type environment. I think what's really happening now, big time for many people, is political bias based oh, yes. on yes. what candidate they prefer. Oh yes. And the thing that, that's interesting uh, about uh, the, uh, the, the bias in, in, in the political realm, for example, is that you have a thing I call syncopatic followership. Everybody's marching in, in lockstep. The key question is, do you know what you are doing? And I look at those as blind spots. You know, blind spots are different between the information that you have as the information that you, sh that you should have. And when you blindly follow people because of charisma, being of charisma or whatever, it creates a real problem. And so I say to people, let your conclusions be the result of your own investigation. Mm -hmm. You're going to hear a lot of information. The folks that say, well, there's three sides to every, uh, there's two sides to every story. No, no, there's three sides. Your side, my side, and the facts. Absolutely. And if you are dealing in a factless situation, then you can see how that political bias really binds people in a way that's going to come back to bite them uh, down the road. Speaking of down the road, 2020 has been a very windy road. Can you talk a little bit about how you've been impacted personally and professionally based on the events of this year? Well, personally, uh, the events of this year, you know, have, I become very disheartened. Mm. Disheartened, at, uh, and from a, from a perspective of, of a retired uh, law enforcement person, from the law enforcement profession, some of the things that, I, that I've seen that shouldn't have happened. Mm. And I ask myself, why are these things happening? And part of my uh, journey in the training is to begin to look at how can we begin to address some of these issues so that they don't become problems. Sure. Like for example, I do not want to see another police officer shot and killed. I don't want to see another person in the community shot and killed because we can do a whole lot better than what we're doing. The key question is right now, are we willing then to own up to our shortcomings to understand that the critical three critical components that we have to deal with here, it is effective leadership, accountability, and effective training and education. Mm. And it all has to start with sitting down and having that conversation. You know, it, it, you look at parents and they deal with their children and everybody wants it. We wanna have the talk. <laughs> And as black parents, you know, uh, and, in law, and from the law enforcement perspective, we have to have the talk in terms of the survival of our young black males. 
But I think from a holistic approach then, from law enforcement officials and, and the uh, representatives, we all have to have the talk. The talk that's gonna sit down so that we all will be at the table to have our contribution mm. to this whole, uh, solving this whole, this whole problem. Law enforcement, for example, we are probably the greatest change agents in society. And as we go, then so basically society. We have more power than we know what to do with, but we don't exercise it. We find ourselves in a defensive posture. You cannot go through life winning being on a defense all the time. When you have the capacity to really move forward with some really constructive uh, uh, answers, that's when things can happen. And what that means then is that we have to find ways to bring all of these entities to, uh, together. The police cannot do without the community and the community cannot do without the police. We are so, we're, we're, we're like a bad marriage Ooh. that's dysfunctional. And so right now then we need that outside help that somebody who can bring these entities together to say, look, we know we have issues. Let's not make them become a problem. You see, because we, 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 we look at in life, we say that when things become a problem, there's a wall that's set up. But we look at this more as an opportunity to start that conversation, you know, so that we can move to where we really need to move. Even in like in, in organizations, you know, people will be talking about diversity and inclusion. And we said, well, we are embracing diversity and inclusion. Well, that's very interesting. You see, because what that inclusion really means is that it is not the fact that you guys are white people and black folks in the workplace, you know, and we say, oh, this is diversity. No, 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 no. If those folks do not feel included, that's a real problem. Oh, well, we, we, we have folks in, there was a situation, for example, we talk about how we see inclusion. Uh, I was at a, at a conference where the police chiefs were there. Before, before you continue, let's, let's include Shannon in this conversation too. I, I want her in right now, but you, okay. were, you were sharing your story. You're about to begin sharing a story. Yeah. Okay, so uh, they, have, they have this panel and they had all of these police chiefs there. Mm -hmm. Well, one of the departments sent an African-American female to be on the panel. What do we have? We have diversity uh, and we have inclusion because we got all these people there on the panel. But if you include me and I'm not able to speak or in, engage, that's problematic for me. Vernon Myers, we talked about inclusion is being invited to the dance and being, at, being asked to dance. If I'm sitting at that table and I'm not able to, even if I am asked questions, be able to respond in a comprehensive way, that's problematic for me. So we really have to look at what does this stuff really, really mean, you know, in, in, our, in, our, in our organization. And we, we find that folks on this call in the organization, you have the same things within, within organizations. You know, you have uh, uh, 
all kind of discord going on with, within your organizations because people do not feel that they are included. You know, I call it, they do not feel emotionally safe in many organizations, you know. Good stuff. Dan, what you think? I think it's very interesting and being a woman that has come from corporate, uh, you know, just to be invited is not enough, right? Um, exactly. In the, in the chat room, folks are saying, you know, it's hard in the day of algorithms determining content, which winds up causing more strongly enriched bias. And also folks are agreeing that, you know, they've had similar experience in the corporate world. Um, but inquiring minds want to know, since you were the first African-American to be in the Pennsylvania State Police Force or state troopers, um, how did your colleagues and superiors respond to, to that offering and you being invited to that table? Well, uh, I got invited to the table when I became a troop commander. Mm. And that, that, that uh, uh, role was very interesting because when I walked into that room and I saw all those folks around the table, I just observed and I listened. And I said to myself, as I listened to some of these people talk and their philosophies, and I said to myself at that point, and you're in charge of people? Hmm. I looked at that and, and, I, and I saw my role then as a troop commander is to take a different approach to command, to try to introduce some courses that were different than the normal police trainings. We brought in a person, a friend of mine who came in and do some communication skills. We had the first company started doing stress management, not only for the officers, but stress management for the wives and families. Mm -hmm. See, because what happened is you can give all the stress management that you want to the officer, but when he goes home, he has to deal with things at home and his family doesn't have a clue as to what's going on. And so we brought the wives in to be able to share with them, you know, what was going on. And then in, in, in that role and, and how things were, were so different is that I recognize that being one of the first African-Americans in that, in that uh, role is that I was not going to be the person who was going to be the catalyst for a lot of change. But I was the guy who was going to be able to engineer that. I had a sergeant who worked for me when I was a lieutenant in Philadelphia, and he came up with me. And so he was an ally. And so the idea here is that when he can come in and share with people that successes that he has had in the past dealing with me, it made it, the transition so much easier for folks to be able to accept what was, what was going on. And so we started to do all those kind of different things because... I found then that in order to be successful as a leader, I, we, we think about, it. I had a three county area, Bucks County, uh, uh, Lehigh County, uh, and um, Bucks Lehigh and Northampton counties. Mm -hmm. Now, if I were to do something positive, I would have to spend eons of years going around every, every home trying to explain what I'm doing. But what I did, I invited the news media in on every kind of uh, initiatives that I had. Why? Because every course that I put out there, 
one blast of a newspaper let everybody in the three county area knew the kind of know the things that were going on. And so we began to make some significant changes as a result of that. And so we look at that leadership role as a chance to have an, a positive impact, you know, on the whole operation. And that was very, very, very critical. Thank you. Thank you, Shan. Uh, Major Brooks, what's, what's your approach to training, to educating, to development? Is it an approach that you used when you were an officer or is it an entirely different mindset? What's your approach to bringing people in? Well, the approach is universal, you know, whether it's police or people in the community to, first of all, if you are if you are doing something, any, any kind of training, I, there are some foundational principles that I talk about and on every training I talk about. And because I think right now, what I find is most effective for me is that I don't want to talk to your, your head. Ooh. Because if I speak to your head, you can rationalize your behavior. I want to speak to your heart because if I speak to your heart, you own Ooh. those emotions. Ooh. When I talk, for example, to talk about, uh, look, look in terms of being able to relate to, to, to other people, empathy. You will never ever understand empathy if people say, well, if you cannot walk a mile in my shoes, you will never know what corns or bunions are like. <laughs> and so the whole idea then is to think about how do you connect with people you're trying to impact or influence? Now, in order to do that then within organizations, for example, there's a term that I call Look, uh, emotional safety. And what does that mean? It's not about locking the doors. It's it's about the kind of safety where employees can say to to their bosses, "Look, let me tell you how that policy that you put up impacted me. Why is that so important? Every human being has a strong wish or desire to be heard and have their needs met. Now, what's important of that? Then, so when I can say to that that an employer, how something impacted me that takes a lot of the weight off that individual so that they can be able to hear me because if they're not able to hear me no change is ever going to be made and i can share with them exactly where i where i am now how does this how does this whole this emotional safety thing work right now let's take let's take a good look at this then uh in terms of um in, in the workplace an individual comes uh, it's a, a couple of things are happening. People sometimes are having issues at home or in the workplace. If they're having issues at home, oftentimes they are not going to talk about it when they come into the workplace, you know, well, because, you know, any kind of any other reasons. And when they're in the workplace, if there is not, if they're not in a safe environment, all kinds of things begin to happen. So the question is right now, where do those emotions go? How does it manifest itself? Either because of some kind of aberrant behavior or some self-destructive type of stuff, you know. In the workplace then, you'd be because of absenteeism, sloppy work or whatever, right? Now, let's take a look at that then in terms of law enforcement, for example. Yeah. And, and, and this is the piece that I, I hammer away because mm -hmm. It is at the heart of what I talk about and what bothers me. There was a situation where 
an officer was in this particular department and he's in the locker room and they're having a jolly good time and they were laughing and joking. And so the guy said, look, I'll see you guys later. And he left. An hour later, they found him in the parking lot with a bullet through his head. Ooh. So now I go, oh my God, oh man, we didn't, we didn't know anything was happening. Yes, you did, but you weren't paying attention. Now, talk about emotional safety in that kind of situation, then it happens all the time. There's a possibility that he has some issues at home, brings it into the workplace, not gonna talk about it. Why? Because of humiliation, shame, whatever. So now what happens, it manifests itself in some antisocial behavior, which he did, or it happens out there on the street. Why doesn't he talk about it? Because we have that thing called the code of silence. We're not going to share that. And so I'm saying to people that we have to really begin to recognize the impact of that emotional safety. And you look at any organization, whether it's in law enforcement or in the private sector, you have issues about emotional safety that organizations are not addressing. And as a result of not addressing those issues, then you have all the other issues that come up, absenteeism, shoddy work, all kinds of things. And so until we begin to recognize that as leaders, it's going to be problematic for us. Awesome, awesome. Now, speaking to the heart, oftentimes in leadership, they are focused on results. They're, they're up here. Mm -hmm. What's your approach for getting them to take the elevator down from here to here? Okay. Your data, statistics, facts, assessments, qualitative, show me how. Okay, here. Approach for taking the elevator from here on down. And part of that starts with what I call my foundational principles before we start training. And it all starts with a thing we called attitude. Zig mm, Ziglar said it's at your, your attitude and not your aptitude which will determine your altitude, which means it doesn't matter how smart you are. Without a positive attitude, you're not going to go anywhere. And that, and, and you choose the attitude that you want when you come into the workplace that, because it impacts everything you do with people. And one of the things I share with them is that we talk about, uh, a Carnegie Institute did a study uh, some years ago, and what they found out that 15% of the success that you enjoy in the workplace involve technical skills or mental ability. 85% with how well you deal with or manage people. Now, let's look at it. Why do we have this issue up here, you know, and, and we have difficulty with it? Now, think about it this way. If you ask yourself then in organizations, how much time percentage-wise do you think organizations spend on ensuring that that 15% is in place? Because what is that really all about? We're all left brain, you know, policies, procedures, bottom line, make sure that, you know. And the prevailing wisdom is we spend about 80% of our time perfecting what gives us 15% success. And we wonder why we have issues. So the, here's the question we ask yourself. What is it that keeps you awake at night? Is it the cars, the computers, or the buildings? Or the, oh, no, it's people, really? 
So now if you spend 80% of your time, what gives you 15% success, how much time do you have to deal with people part of the business? Now, what do you have to do then? You have to find ways to flip that whole script. Because if you are not dealing, because we, we, we hear folks who say, well, our employees are our most valued asset. Well, yeah. if they are, then treat them that way. Make them emotionally safe in your environment. You see, because if you can create an environment where people can do their best work, they will. Mm -hmm. it, it, it's almost like the whole notion of motivation. Motivation means expectation times value. The expectation is that you will provide, from a psychological perspective, you will provide a, a bias-free workplace for me. And the expectation is that I will give you what you are looking for, but you have to be able to provide that. You know, like folks are saying, well, you know, we, we find we, we, we can't motivate people. Well, no, you're never gonna motivate, motivate people. The best you can do is create an environment where they can succeed and then you won't have to worry about all that stuff up here because it will happen. Because right now you have so much talent in the workplace that you're harnessing, unleash that talent and let them work. Unleash it. Powerful, powerful. Shannon, what's happening in the chat room? What's happening out there? I'm just, I'm in awe of, of your passion. <laughs> Question. We want to know, since you're a relationship, you, you teach on relationship issues and how to deal with difficult people. I'm writing my notes, three bullet points that you can give us that we can take away today for our guests that we can start implementing right now, if not sooner. You mean dealing with difficult people? Yes, preach it now. Let me get my notepad. <laughs> okay. Well, you have to realize that if you think about, if you think about it, there are no difficult people. There are difficult situations or circumstances. Oh, that's good. If you can, if you can change the situation or circumstances, then you're on a way to get things happen. The next point is that you have to meet people where they are. Mm. See, because if you can't meet them where they are, you can't take them anywhere. Mm. You know, and you have to always also acknowledge the fact that you know that. And not everything is going to change the way you want it to change, you know, but, but, but the, and understand that people will change for two reasons. One, because of necessity or new information. Necessity or new information. And if, and if, and if, you, and if you can really hone in, into, and those are just three off the top of my head. And the idea then is to think about if, if you are dealing with a person, empathy has to be a cornerstone for everything that you're going to do. Mm -hmm. As you look at that individual, ask yourself, if I were talking to me on the other side of that table, wow. how would I like to be communicated with? Yeah, that's good. That's real good. Ooh, what about- Anybody else out there? Any more questions? Yeah. Uh, how do you deal with uh, challenges in the workplace when you're trying to implement change in the area of excellence and diversity practices? All of this stuff is like sweeping stairs. Mm, great. It has to start from the top mm. and come down. 
you have a vision, mission, and value statement on your walls, and many of them will probably be yellow because they've been hanging so long <laughs> and not dealt with. You have to be a student of all of those philosophies. You see, because one of the things that's interesting in this, in this business, as a leader, what you say has more power than you can possibly imagine, however, for good or evil. And a lot of people are going to follow you because they believe in you. And if they believe in you, it behooves you then to give them the right information. You see, because if you give them the right information, you know, your goals are going to be reached a whole lot faster if you do it that way. Yeah. People have to, you have to have a psychological contract with people. Mm. You know, it, it's almost like in, in law enforcement, for example, we had the psychological contract when the law enforcement were first formed and it goes something like this. We know as the community, we don't want the responsibility for patrolling and all of that stuff. So what's happening, we're going to invest, we're going to invest you with that responsibility. In exchange for that, then, we will agree then to obey the laws. In the workplace, a psychological contract, you know, if I, as a leader, if I can give you that environment conducive to you doing your best work, then part of that, your bargain then is that you're going to respond in a positive way because I have set the table for you to be successful mm. so that we all can benefit in individual. Because what happens then, it allows us then to work smart as opposed to hard. Yes. That's good. Thank you, Shannon. Major Ben, what I'm hearing you say is that inclusion is a leadership opportunity yes not a leadership problem but a leadership opportunity yes yes you know you you, you think think about it this way everything i talk about in the business world impacts your families as well think about your children when a child is born, the percentage of creativity is 100%. Think about the creativity where we are right now as adults, five or 10%. Why? Because somewhere along the line, someone kept telling us, no, 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 no. And we were not allowed to blossom to show what it is that we have. Within organizations, you have so many talented employees that are being stymied because their, their, their creativity is, 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 not, is not being unleashed. And as a result, organizations lose a tremendous amount of, 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 of capabilities that could have auto otherwise had. You know, for example, I, I remember as a true commander, I realized that my training budget was very low. They gave me a training budget of like, $800 for the year. Well, you send two people to a class and that's, that blows that away. But anyway, I looked at it and I started thinking about, there are a lot of things that we needed. And I started thinking, wait a minute, we have like 219 people under my command. So we sent out a survey and the survey, cause I wanted to find out what kind of talent pool I had out there. 
And man, it came back. There was people who in IT and all kinds of stuff. So now I'm able to put people in places right now that we didn't have that we didn't know before. And we, first of all, they were happy because they have a chance to utilize their, their, their particular expertise. And it really created a, a kind of progressive type uh, environment. And in the workplace, this is the kind of stuff that we have to do. And one of the things that's interesting here, particularly in a diverse workplace environment, African-Americans and those people of color are not always looked upon as the most productive people. And yet there are some of the people who, whose talents, if we have unleashed them, would take us to where we really need to be. I go back. I'll go back and 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 the move and hidden figures. You know, as you watch that movie, there were so many other people out there who have that same kind of expertise, but because of our biases in selecting people who are we comfortable with, as opposed to people we need, we lose that kind of perspective. So I say to that individual in in, in this business, then, as a leader of a company or whatever. You have to have a tremendous amount of cultural competence and able to recognize the, the, the tremendous talent pool that you have in front of you and utilize that pool. Good stuff, good stuff. Major Ben, can you think of a time where because of the experience, you stepped back and said, this is why I do what I do where you were able to create an intervention or you did something during one of your coaching, your trainings, where light bulbs went off all over the place or you were able to move someone from point A to point Z, where you nodded your head. A couple, a couple things, a couple things that happened. Well, one, I was, I was doing a session for a, a police department. Uh, as I was at Villanova University, as a matter of fact, and this uh, the director there, I saw him about five um, years later. And he said to me, he said, you know, I need to tell you something. You said something to me about five years ago that has stuck with me till uh -huh. today. And I was like, wow, that's why we do what we do. The other one was, I had a, a sergeant in a police department who we were talking about dealing with difficult people. So he said, you know, I have a son that I, I'm having difficulty with this son and I don't know how to handle it. And I said, well, let me explain something to you. And one of the things that happened with our, our families is that we happen to speak at or to them very seldom with. So I said to him, I said, what I want you to do is this. I want you to go home and I want you to call your son to the side and say to him, son, come here for a second. I want to talk to you. I want you to tell me about your day. Ask the question, shut up, let him talk. I saw him a month later and I said, what happened? He said, you know, I did exactly like you told me. Now I can't shut the kid up. All right, now what was happening there? You see, once that child was allowed to express himself, then who could be who he is, <clears throat> pardon me, you know? And so those kinds of things, you know, all right, you know, for, for example, another example, I, I, I just did a session with the judges, the minor judiciary, and 
I got this email and it started out, wow. And the judge started explaining, she says, you know, when I, I started the, 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 the webinar, she said, it, it, it just touched me, some of the things that, that, you, that you were saying. And I'm saying to myself then, that's the kind of feeling that I want to generate. You see, uh, don't tell me, well, oh, Major Ben, oh, that was a great presentation that you made. You know, that sounds good. But Major Ben, you touched a part of me. See, that's the thing that folks are going to remember. Ooh. I'm going to give you a series of words. And I want your knee-jerk reaction to each word. See if we touch some people. So I'll give you a word, your mm -hmm. knee-jerk reaction to that word. Mm -hmm. First word, power. Power is the ability to impact and influence. Good, that's good. Yes. What we're gonna do, we're gonna even shorten it. I'm gonna give you one word, you give me one word. Inclusion. Making me an integral part of what's going on. America. A place where everyone can be what they were designed to be with the right kind of environment and uh, encouragement. Empowerment. Empowerment is the ability to be able to exercise a matter of, um, I would say, psychological uh, control or influence with people. Race. A social construct that was designed to embrace supremacy. Last one, leadership. Leadership is the ability to influence people to follow. Good stuff, good stuff. Shannon, you want in, you want in. Major Ben is putting it down. <laughs> yeah, I know, and I know you've worn a lot of hats. So in your, in your former life as a licensed private investigator, can you share with us one of the um, most memorable requests or even even one that was silly that you maybe had to even turn down? Well, let me put it to you this way. It <laughs> was a it was a short-lived profession <laughs> because the what I found when about uh, some of the requests that came in uh, involved a member of my church. Ooh. And it was one of those situations where I, I dealt with this, this whole thing and I was sorry I took the case. And I realized that because when I took, I got my private investigator's license, my aim then was to be able to do investigations involving Title VII and things like this. And when I started to do that and I started realizing if people are gonna call me for this kind of thing, uh-uh, no, I don't want to deal with it. And, and, by, and by the way, at that time, I was driving a, a Volkswagen Corrado 
you know, it, it, it was called Arrest Me Red, you know. And uh, imagine me doing undercover work in, 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 a, <laughs> in that kind of vehicle. And I, I had to laugh at myself at that. And then I, but then I realized at that point that that was not where I really wanted to be. And so I decided then, then that I have to be able to change course. And what that's really all about is that oftentimes in life, we are going to embark on many venues in life. And sometimes we would do them just because there's money involved, but there's not enough money for me to continue doing that kind of uh, thing, you know? And so I just, I just backed out of it. Now, uh, if someone were to ask me now on Title VII, I would gladly do that, but I would not get into those, uh, uh, Jerry uh, uh, Springer type. What's happening in the chat room? Any questions or any comments? Uh, yes. Um, somebody has asked, do you find more of that stoic frame of mind and behavior mostly in military in, in the policing or is that kind of universal? You mean the stoic? Well, I guess it depends on the individual. There, there is a there is a time for stoicism, but there's also a time for the soft part of the, of the business. Yeah. When I'm in uniform, when I was in uniform, you know, I was all business. Mm -hmm. But you know, I still could have that soft side. You see, so. It, 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 it's, it's, it's basically, it's situational. You know, for, for example, one of, the, one of the highlights of my of my career was I spent a part of the summer working with Head Start kids. Mm. Now, you can imagine, you know, big old state troopers sitting in the room with these little, little kids, but it was so rewarding for me because that was a, that's a little young Spanish kid there who apparently had been abused by males in her life. And then she was like, just afraid of everybody. And at the end of the day, she was obviously was sitting on my lap playing with handcuffs and stuff like this. That warmed my heart because we forged a relationship with those kids. And see, so on the one hand, I can I, I can stop this big criminal out here, but at the same time, I can embrace that little child. Yeah. See, so so I was able to make the transition. And one of the things folks will say to me that they, they, they describe, they say, well, he, he can be the, as hard as, as all kinds of, but as soft as, and, and it happened because of the number of different jobs that I had. Now, quite frankly, if I had spent my whole career just on the highway, it wouldn't have happened. But I had an opportunity now to be able to branch out and do something you know, because I look at a, a more of a, of a holistic approach. And this gentleman who took his own life, um, do you think it's a cultural thing in America or even uh, a lot, we see a lot times more with men who don't want to be as vulnerable and share, uh, especially in the workplace? Well, one of the things in law enforcement, particularly, we say when in the law enforcement, when the going gets tough, we said our guys swallow their guns. Mm. Women cry. Mm. What a trade-off. Yeah. In the work in the normal workplaces, you know, it may not manifest itself into that that extreme, but you still have the same kinds of issues there. You know, there are a lot, and, and there are so many people in the workplace right now, you know, who are very unhappy. 
they feel unsafe, you know, but no one is addressing those issues, you know, unfortunately. Thank you, Shannon. That was a great question. Great question. Major Ben, there are a lot of people who have become DEI experts out of the blue. They're they're leading sessions, they're facilitating. What do you think goes into being an effective diversity, equity, and inclusion facilitator, coach, leader, doing the work that we do? Well, if you're a person who is uh, who has been an academic, you can speak to the head. If you're a person who lived it, you can speak from the heart. Because I can tell you from the time that that 1954 decision was made, you know, that diversity and inclusion or exclusion at the time would have been, was an integral part of my life from that point up till now. I speak about not what I've read, but what I have lived. You see, because, you know, uh, I, I can, I, right now, what is happening right now, uh, people are, in law enforcement, for example, people right now uh, are showing the movie uh, Walking While Black. And that's very important to start the conversation. But you see, I don't want you to look at that as a documentary. Oh, that was, you know, I want you to be able to relate to that. So when you have that conversation, don't have a conversation with people who look like you. Have a conversation with people who look like me, who've been there, done that, who can share with you what this is really all about. Who can, who can share with you what it feels like to, to be confronted with, uh, with a bias that impacts you to the core. You know, for example, I was on a detail with PennDOT in 1966 uh, or 67 or what, you know, 65 or 64. And uh, I was one on a rural road up in Carbon County. And we had stopped for on a break in front of a house was one of those really, really hot days. You know, you one of those days that you would give your firstborn for a cold glass of water. You know? So we stopped in front of this house. And so I walked in for you and walked over and the lady and her son were sitting on the steps. So I walked over and said, uh, pardon me, could I have a glass of water? And so she says, go get it. So the son came, I brought a glass of water. I drank the water and I gave the, thanked him for the water and gave the glass and started walking away. I had taken no more than five steps when I heard the unmistakable sound of breaking glass. Oh. I froze for a moment and I realized that that glass that had just touched my lips would never touch the lips of another human being in life. I saw the Pendant crew and they was looking at amazement. So I went to my car and tried to collect myself. A few minutes later, the lady came up with a picture of lemonade for the crew. So when I talk about diversity and I talk about the impact of all of those things that you need to be able to feel what I'm feeling. Because if you can't feel what I'm feeling, that lesson that you're looking at won't do you any good. Because you go back, saw that big picture, it's business as usual. Cannot be that way, you know. So the people who 
or living it can give a testimony. And those who have not lived it, lived it can give you a critique. Love it, love it. Your statement about sharing from the heart, not necessarily sharing the research and the data is very compelling. Very compelling because a lot of people will go to research articles, will go to books to get more knowledge in this area, but it coming from the heart. You can forget things that you learn up here. Yeah. But you don't forget the emotions or the scars or the pain that you've experienced yep. in your life. Very compelling. You want to speak more to that? Very compelling. You know, one of the things that strikes me a lot, I was coming from uh, Louisiana, going over to uh, Florida. And I, it's in the daytime and I pass the Pearl River. And I was struck because I immediately thought of Emmett Till. Mm -hmm. And I remember what his mother said and when he had his funeral, she says, no, 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 he was so disfigured. She said, no, no, I want an open casket. Because I want the world to see what they did to my boy. You see, we can read it. And we can say, oh, that was terrible. But no, you're, you're witnessing it. Mm -hmm. This is right there in front of you. Major Ben is right there in the classroom that you can physically touch him and he can, as he shares his story. That's what this is really it's powerful. all about. Powerful, powerful, thank you. Uh, something tells me you're never gonna retire. Something tells me this is your life's work. What are your views on the whole concept of retirement? Well, you know what I tell people? And they say, when are you going to retire? <laughs> That's the picture. Mm. As long as I have something to say, I'm going to say it. And I would tell, tell my people, even at my funeral, you know, I want you to be playing a recording as though I'm still talking. See, because my grandfather once said to me was a young boy, he said, you know what, you have enough mouth for another set of teeth, boy. <laughs> <laughs> and so I talk a lot because I really think I have something to say. And I try to share that. And I tell people in life, your success in life is going to be based on OPE, other people's experiences, you know. And I, when I, I've asked the question to folks, I said, what is the richest place where you live? And they give all kinds of areas. And I said, no, 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 it's the cemetery because all the great ideas are buried there. Ideas that are not shared don't do anybody any good. And speaking so of, I, I'm sharing that. Speaking of any good, what's, what's next for you? What's an offering? What's next for me? What's next for me is to, uh, right now I am uh, writing my life story and, and trying to put that together. I'm putting together all of the video footage of everything that I've done as a, as a collage. 
and I'm working on my major bench uh, principles of, of leadership, you know, and that's where I, that's where my focus is right now. A lot of work right now with working with this group uh, with a, a, a cardinal point, working with school police and trying to bring some uh, uh, some quality stuff to that to that organization. Great organization I'm working with. I'm enjoying. I'm having a great time with them because it gives me an opportunity to deal with the most precious uh, a, a quantity that we have right now, and that is our young people and particularly people of color, you know, so that we can really bring some sense to it. Because right now with this, uh, right now with this uh, uh, pandemic, it has changed everything right now. And with distance learning, the whole notion of bias and all those things are gonna be exacerbated because now we don't have the kind of, uh, of, of coming together that, that we need. And so there is a whole lot more that has to be done to make sure that these kids have the resources that they need and that the kind of instructions that we need to have for them is there. And the whole idea then is to make sure that people of color are there so those kids can see a model of what it is that they can be and they can aspire to. Beautiful. Major Ben to say that it's been a privilege to listen and learn from you today would be an understatement. And I think Shannon would co-sign that, that belief as well. We thank you for your courage. We thank you for your wisdom. We thank you for your head, but most importantly, your heart. So thank you for the opportunity to spend some time with thank you. you. Thank you. For those of you who are watching, I told you it was gonna be good. I told you it keeps getting better. We talked about leadership. We talked about love. We talked about vulnerability. We talked about inclusion and empowerment. Let's not make this just a moment or a movement. Make it a part of your life. You've just been Jim Packett. We'll see you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.